Good morning, everybody. So, do you guys remember we took an offering for Nepal for that property, that big discipleship training center property? And um, we got out of that offering 8200 And then our church, out of our church fund, we're doing 30000 So, we got 38200 going towards Nepal to that discipleship training center and that property and that building. So guys, give yourselves a hand. That was, that's huge. It's 80 Nepali rupees for one U.S. dollar, so that money goes really far. So the other thing I wanted to mention was, um, it's a, I'm going to do the, the one-second version, but there's on Facebook, Dave King, who runs the Haven Lane Church, and Brooke found out about a guy that posted who we had never heard of before, ever. His name was Brian Hume. And Dave tagged him. And I found out later that he went to Christ for the Nations, which is where I went. And that when he was young, he used to pray and fast with Lou Engel in Pasadena at the vineyard Pasadena back then. He has dreams. He has visions. He, he's a real prophet. And he had had a dream 10 years ago when Carol Wimber walked up to him and had a group of business cards that were all different vineyard churches. And she pulled out three of them and said, these are from in your Belinda and handed them to him 10 years ago. Three different vineyard churches in your Belinda. And he looked at the cards and he, had, he saw some detail. One of the cards he said, it looked like it was Hilton Garden Inn. Well, when we had the lady put together our Vineyard Your Belinda logo, Brooke held it up and said, oh my gosh, I don't know if we can use this. It looks exactly like Hilton's logo. This was months and months and months ago. And we were wondering, it's so close to Hilton, can we use this? And so this was a, ten, a dream he had 10 years ago. And he said that with those, and John Wimber, as the cards were put on a different desk, John Wimber just kind of went and looked at each one of the cards, and he realized the old, it's, it's old vineyard, it's the root, it's the well that the Lord wants to spring up again. After he shared that, and you know, because there's, there's three churches that have come out. Damien and Marnie lead a church, um, Dave and Debbie, and then us. And then he started individually prophesying, and to Brooke and I, one thing he said to Brooke was that, the Lord's given you an honorary theology degree. The Lord's given you an honorary, oh, I'm going to share it, an honorary degree. Well, here's what he didn't know. One or two days before this meeting, Brooke and I were talking, and she goes, do you think I need to go to Bible school or seminary and do all that study? And we had a discussion about that. No one in the world knows that. She says, do you think I need to get a degree? And then he looks at her last Sunday and says, the Lord tells you he's given you an honorary degree. And then he says, and the Lord showed me there's a country you're going to be impacting. And he says, all I see is that the name of the country starts with the letter T. And he brought it up again and again. That morning, Brooke had emailed David Roos, who's over Vineyard Canada, about connecting with us with the vineyard in Nepal because we want to start impacting Tibet, which starts with a T. Again, he didn't know that. And he, he's, he, he knows nothing about our church, literally nothing. He heard that there is a church, but he knows nothing. He doesn't know the age makeup of our church. And he said, the Lord showed me a vision. Your church has a lot of old people. A lot of old people. And he said, but suddenly it was like a pendulum and the Lord flipped it. And he said, I saw that you're going to have many more young people than you have old people. And he didn't know. How did he know that our church isn't full of 18 and 19-year-olds? Does that make sense? It was so accurate. And I'm telling you guys, we are on God's radar as a church. And the best way to prepare for what God is doing is to serve. So show up at 9 a.m. <laughs> with Brooke. That's how you become great in the kingdom. <laughs> then we'll make them do it. We're, keep, we're going through Kings. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. This is 
honestly, when you look at people that teach the Bible, many people consider this passage one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. It baffles them. And they don't know what to do with it. And what's interesting is I find the passages that seem to be the most difficult when you dive into them are often the richest, deepest, most profound truths about God. And so we're going to look at the Lord and the lying demon and in 1 Kings chapter 22. And hopefully you guys are reading through 1 and 2 Kings on your own as well as we go through these books. Let's read it. 1 Kings chapter 22 verse 1. For three years Syria and Israel continued without a war. But in the third year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, remember that's the southern kingdom, came down to the king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, and the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? It's a town in northern Israel. And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria, because the Syrians had conquered this town earlier. And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people is your people, my horses is your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. And that Lord is Yahweh. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up for the Lord, and that's not the name Yahweh, that's a different word, Adonai, I'll mention that in a minute, will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may acquire? He said, there's got to be some prophets that aren't just going to tell you what you want to hear. That aren't just going to tell you, you're going to get more influence, you're going to prosper more, you're going to get better, you're going to make more money and more friends and more this and more that, right? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And that word evil could be is harm or calamity. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, made for himself horns of iron. And he puts the horns on his head and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. That word pushes to gore. You know what I'm saying? Like what horns do. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So Ramoth Gilead was a city in northern Israel it's just southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Under King Solomon, it was part of Israel. Later on, the Syrians captured it. So Ahab, you guys remember Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel, Ahab? The king of Israel decides, I want the city back. And so he asked Jehoshaphat, who's the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, to help him. And Jehoshaphat agrees to help him in battle. Now, Jehoshaphat was a godly king. Ahab was as ungodly as you get. Why are they joining together? Well, Jehoshaphat and Ahab are allied by marriage. And, and that might explain his response. Ahab's daughter, Ataliah, married Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. See what happens when family gets all intermixed? All kinds of bad stuff. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 18, you can read about that. So Jehoshaphat says, hey, before we go to battle, let's inquire the word of the Lord of Yahweh. That's the name God calls himself. 
And he said, we got to see if God's directing us or not. Often these battles were not just military and physical, but they were spiritual. So Ahab says, I got 400 prophets we can ask. Now, you have to understand in Israel, what's going on? There's a mixture of religions going on. The worship of Yahweh is all intermixed with the worship of this God, Baal, who Jezebel brought the religion from Phoenicia a long t- a while ago. So it's this mixture of paganism and Judaism, and it's just all some big mess. Baalism is not wiped out of Israel until 2 Kings chapter 10, where a guy named Jehu destroys the whole religion and gets rid of it in Israel. So Ahab's prophets, when they respond, they said, go up for the Lord. They don't use the name Yahweh. They use the name Adonai. And Adonai is a general term. It means Lord or Master. And it could apply to all kinds of different leaders or lords or gods. So they say, for Adonai will give it into the hand of the king. Do you know how vague that is? Do you know how ambiguous that is? They don't identify which lord will deliver. They use the general word Adonai. They don't say who or what will be delivered. They don't even say into which king's hand it will be delivered. Do you guys ever, I mean, I'm not saying you should go on TV and watch psychic shows. But I remember one time there was this guy named Chris something. He would pretend like he's speaking for the dead. He was real popular for a while. And he was, what was that guy's name? And he was, and he would give these fortune tellings and these prophetic, quote, prophetic words. They were always so vague that pretty much any situation they could be fulfilled in. And you find that with psychics. You find that with fortune tellers, tarot card readers. They're so vague that they kind of are so ambiguous that they can kind of be fulfilled pretty much anything that happens. That's what these guys are doing. Does that make sense? Now, Ahab had already said... I want to take remote Gilead. The prophets knew that. So they give an oracle that is favorable, supportive of Ahab. They were interested in being supportive, not necessarily in being accurate. And Jehoshaphat recognizes that. And he goes, well, isn't there another prophet of Yahweh of whom we may inquire? He says, can we have someone tell us what's true not just what's favorable. And Ahab responds, well, there's one guy, Micaiah, but, quote, I hate him. He never prophesies good concerning me, but harm or calamity. And what does Ahab's own words reveal? He's not interested in truth from God. He wants, he's interested in what? Prophecies that are what? Good concerning me. Everybody see that? And Zedekiah is probably the leader of these 400 prophets. And he hears Jehoshaphat kind of discount them. And then he sees Ahab's words. And Ahab is indirectly already discounting them. And he says, well, I got to add clarity. I'm going to confirm our prophecy. So firstly, he says, okay, we are speaking on behalf of Yahweh, not just a general Adonai. He says in 1 Kings twenty two eleven, thus says the Lord, what? Yahweh. Secondly, he doesn't just speak a prophetic word. This time, he's going to do a prophetic action. He gets these horns of iron And it says, And Zedekiah the son of Chenanah made for himself horns of iron and said, With these you shall push. That's the Hebrew word nagah, to gore, like with horns. The Syrians until they are destroyed. You might say, well, why do that? He's referring to a Bible verse. 
Deuteronomy 33, 17, when Moses is giving the blessings to Israel if you obey him, one of the things Moses says is, a firstborn bull, he's prophesying to the, one of, to the northern tribes, a firstborn bull, he has majesty, and with his horns are the horns of a wild ox, and with them he shall gore, naga, the same word, the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. Well, that verse in Deuteronomy is from Moses. It was given to the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And what's the verse, what's the it about? Victory over your enemies. And then the prophecy is confirmed by all the other prophets. It says in 22.11, And all the prophesied, prophets prophesied so in the same way and said. So Zedekiah, what does he tell the two kings? He says, my prophecy is from Yahweh. And then he says, my prophecy is confirmed by Scripture. And he gives them a verse out of Deuteronomy. He, he basically acts out a verse from Deuteronomy. And then he says, I'm the one that has all the other confirmations. Right? But regardless, they still go get Micaiah. Verse 13. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Well, that's the good response. Verse 15, and when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered them, go up and triumph. Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, and so Micaiah said, okay, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as a sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil or harm or calamity? So Micaiah is brought in. And he said, only be supportive of the king. Verse 13, let your words be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. Micaiah replies that he says, I'm only speaking what God tells me to speak, whether or not it is favorable. The goal is not to be positive. The goal is to be accurate. What the Lord says to me, that I will speak. So when the king asked Micaiah if he should go to battle, what does Micaiah say? Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hands of the king. He just repeated what the 400 prophets had been saying. Right? Didn't he just say, I'm only going to speak what the Lord is saying? And then he repeats what the 400 are saying. And it looks like he's absolutely contradicting himself. Now, here's the point. We read what he said, but this is a book, not a movie. We don't know how he said it. We don't know what tone of voice he used. And we can assume pretty much with certainty that Micaiah was being super sarcastic. You would be shocked how many of the prophets used just sheer absolute sarcasm. Because there are some things you can communicate using sarcasm that cut in such a way that just normal speech doesn't. You should hear God talk to Job and the sarcasm God uses with Job. 
My, Micaiah is mimicking them. He's making fun of them, most likely with his tone of voice. How do we know that? Because that's exactly how Ahab interprets Micaiah's words. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Immediately Ahab knows he's mimicking them. But why? Why mimic the 400 prophets? Why use sarcasm? What's the point? And, and he's not trying to deceive Ahab. He's trying to... The sarcasm had a purpose. It was to expose Ahab. To expose him. Because look at how with the sarcasm he gets a response from Ahab that he may not get, have gotten just speaking something else. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? By accusing Micaiah of not being truthful, Ahab is admitting something. What is he admitting? That he hasn't heard the truth yet. That he, a part of him does want to hear the truth. He's... The sarcasm caused Ahab to admit something that he wasn't admitting earlier. Does that make sense? He caused Ahab to say, okay, I, I, I don't, don't want to just listen to something that agrees with me. I want to listen to something that's true. And he's also admitting something, that Micaiah really does have the true word of the Lord. That's what he's admitting After Ahab's admission, Micaiah finally gives him the real prophecy. And he says, here's the real prophecy, Ahab. God is going to remove you as king of Israel. Verse 17, and he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as a sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each one return to his own home in peace. So Micaiah says, you guys, he says, here's the real issue. The real issue is not Israel's battle against Syria. The real issue is God's judgment against Ahab. That's the real issue. Why? Because Ahab was the most wicked king that had ever stepped on the scene. Child sacrifice, a culture of bestiality, homosexuality, immorality, idolatry, demon worship, witchcraft, sorcery, violence. I mean, Ahab brought all of that and made it part of the normal culture. After Micaiah shares this vision, Ahab responds and complains that Micaiah only prophesies calamity while the others prophesy victory. And in response to that complaint, Micaiah says, okay, let me answer that. Let me tell you another prophetic vision I just had. Look at this one. Verse 19, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven, that's the angels, the sp all these angelic beings, good and bad, standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? That means die. That means be killed. And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him or I will deceive him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. You might say, well, wait a minute, Sam. 
Aren't, isn't that a demon? Everybody nod your head. Yes. It's not a good angel. Bad angel. Now, now, and therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So the vision has two meanings, two messages. One is, that lying spirit, there's a lying spirit in the prophets. And two is, the real prophecy is you're going to die. If you go battle the Sumerians, the Syrians. So we got these two kings, verse 10, who were sitting on their thrones and all the prophets prophesying before them. But then Micaiah says in verse 20, I see the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him. So the earthly scene of the two earthly kings and all the prophets, and then the heavenly scene of God on his throne with all the angels. The heavenly scene explains what's going on in the earthly scene. God asked the spirits who will go and entice Ahab to go to battle at Ramoth Gilead. For in that battle, Ahab will fall. That means he's going to be killed. So a lying spirit comes forward and says, hey, I'm going to be the lying spirit in the mouth of all those prophets. And that lie, that false prophecy, what's the effect of it? It will entice Ahab to do something. To do what? To go to battle. But what's going to happen in the battle? What's going to happen? He dies. But he doesn't just die. The heavenly vision says something. It's not death. It's not a natural incident. It's not a casualty of war. It is God arranging it. It is divine judgment. And so God sends the lying spirit on its mission. Any of you ever read this passage before? Now, this vision just has people pull their hair out. It's a it seems to be a serious theological and moral problem. God sends a lying spirit. Doesn't that contradict God's own character? How can God use a lying spirit if God what? Forbids lying. The scriptures teach that God is truthful. His nature and character is true. Isaiah 45, 19, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Truth is part of his nature. God can do anything, but what God cannot do is deny himself. God can't decide not to be God. And because of that, it's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie, right? And God commands us not to lie. Have you guys ever read the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20, 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And if, if, if a person doesn't receive Jesus' forgiveness and salvation, then the only option is judgment and punishment. What's one of the sins humanity is punished for? In the book of Revelation, it lists all these sins. Sexual immorality, sorcery, greed, murder, and on and on. And then it says, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So, God's character is absolute truth. God's command is do not lie. So, how can God use a lying spirit without contradicting himself? 
And you know what a lot of scholars say? He can't. It's just another reason why the Old Testament is inaccurate. They say the Israelites had a wrong view of God. Jesus showed up to correct that view. And so now you've got the right view of God in the New Testament and the wrong view of God in the Old Testament. A lot of people teach that. It's absolutely not true. The Bible accurately reflects God, Genesis to Revelation, not just Matthew to Revelation. So what do we need to consider? Number one, God is sovereign over everything and everyone. Could you imagine... Think about this for a moment. If there was actually something outside of his control, you don't want gravity outside of his control. You don't want the movements. Do you understand what he's saying? The movements of bodies in the universe outside of his control. You don't want... I mean, if there's something outside of his control, then what's running the universe, God or chaos? Right? Nothing is outside of his control. Not even evil spirits. Really? They're outside of God's control? God doesn't cause evil to happen, but he does allow it. Why? Because he didn't create a universe full of robots. He created beings with free will. He created spirits and angels with free will and human beings with free will. And giving them free will allows them to make evil choices, bad choices, or good choices. Right? God doesn't cause evil, but he certainly allows it because he gives people free will. Secondly, Ahab wanted to hear a lie. He admitted it. God gives Ahab what Ahab wants. Do you know what, we, you know what that is? That's a form of divine judgment. When God gives people to their own evil desires, it's a form of judgment. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Does that sound like Ahab? But how is the wrath of God revealed? Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart. And Paul repeats it just to make it clear. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. So, divine judgment, a part of it is God just letting people, giving them over to their own evil desires. Let them experience the consequences of their own decisions. The same principle is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 11 to 12. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Because they what? Refuse to what? They refuse to love the truth. They're making a decision. So how does judgment come? For this reason. For what reason? They refuse to love the truth. They refuse to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Well, you, you might think, well, wait a minute. That verse in 2 Thessalonians sounds an awful lot like the story of 1 Kings chapter 22. Right? Thirdly, God this is, you've got to under, you've got to get this point. Everybody say, this point's important. I'm going to stand up here because it's so important. God gave Micaiah this vision so that he can share it publicly and not privately. Who is Micaiah giving the vision to? 
two kings, and who else is there? 400 prophets. Who's hearing this vision of the lying spirit? Ahab, Jehoshaphat, and 400 prophets. Now, Ahab's goal is to, he- is to hear what is affirming, not what is true, right? Everybody got that? The prophet's goal is to please Ahab. Everybody got that, right? What's God's goal? But not just the truth. What's God's goal? Why did God have Micaiah share that vision publicly? Not just, but why share it? it ha- the prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet. Do you understand what I'm saying? God's ultimate goal is to lead Ahab to the truth and to lead the prophets to the truth so that they would repent, not so that they would be deceived and judged. Why else tell them beforehand? Do you understand what I'm saying? God tells Ahab and the prophets, you are listening to a lying spirit. Why tell them that? God tells Ahab, if you go into this battle, you're going to die, and it's God's judgment. Why tell Ahab that before it happens? Yes. Could God not be more transparent? Do you understand what I'm saying? God's not trying to deceive anybody. If you look in the previous chapter, chapter 21, Elijah prophesies to Ahab. And and Ahab's evil was so great, Elijah says, God's going to wipe out your whole family and house. 1 Kings 21, 20 to 21. Because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon you. Now, what was God's goal in Elijah prophesying that? Was God's goal, I'm going to judge you. There's no hope you will be judged. That was not God's goal. The reason Elijah tells him before the fact was so that Ahab would repent. And do you know what happened in chapter 21? Read it later. Ahab partially repents. Ahab humbles himself before God. And God says, oh, I see that, Ahab. I'm going to delay everything that was prophesied to you. He gives Ahab a longer window of time. Read it. 1 Kings 21, 27 to 29. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went out dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have, this is God speaking, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. And it didn't happen in his days. God extended the window of mercy to see if Ahab would repent again more thoroughly. Well, now we're in the next chapter and it's not happening. So God is telling Ahab beforehand about the lying spirit in his prophets and about his coming death because he wants Ahab to turn back to him. Why else say it beforehand? Just keep it a secret. Let the prophets be deceived. Let Ahab be deceived and let Ahab die. Just keep it a secret. God says, that's not the way I roll. But what's the problem? By this point in Ahab's life, God's word had become irrelevant. By this point, God's word had become irrelevant. Ahab's heart was so hard, he didn't even budge. He wouldn't repent. Verse 24, Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenani, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? 
And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah, take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison, feed him meager rations of bread and water, until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. After Micaiah shares the vision that a lying spirit was in the mouths of the prophets, Zedekiah, who's one of those prophets, it gets super offended and angry. And in Hebrew, it literally says he punches him in the face. Straight up. Then he says, how did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? What's he saying? Hey, Micaiah, you said I have a lying spirit. The truth is, if I had a lying spirit, that lying spirit is now jumped on you, and you've got it. What's, what is he implying? He's saying, Micaiah, you're the one prophet in the room that's lying. You're the one prophet in the room that's deceiving everybody. Look at it's 400 against you, and you think you're right? How does Micaiah respond? He tells Zedekiah his future. Zedekiah says, you're going to be fearing for your life in a secret room in a house from other people that are trying to kill you. That's basically what he says. And Micaiah is saying, if my prediction comes true, then you'll know that I'm a prophet of God. Why would Micaiah say that? Because what does Deuteronomy 18 say? If you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. What is it said? How do you know if that person has a real word from God? The word will what? Come true. You know what prophets should do in the church? I love it that they blog and post. Somebody needs to keep a record. A record. And then later down the line, now some prophecies are conditional, so they may not come to pass if there's a certain response, but not all are. And they need to see, is this guy accurate? Do his prophecies come to pass? Right? You know, when Paul says test prophecy, one of the things you test for is when they say something's going to happen in the future, does it happen? By the way, that's a sign God knows the future. Demons will try to arrange the future and predict it. God predicts because he knows. Do you understand the difference? Only he's omniscient. Ahab responds by having Micaiah thrown into prison. Now, you, you may not... Micaiah's been in prison before, by the way, because the verse says, seize, verse 26, 27, seize Micaiah and return him. Put this fellow in prison. That verb return means he's been there before. Ahab keeps throwing him in jail because he doesn't like his prophecies. The question is, would you keep prophesying if you knew that your prophecies did not result in altar calls and donations, but resulted in imprisonment? He doesn't just disregard Micaiah's prophecy. He literally hates Micaiah because of his prophecies. Ahab says, imprison him until I come in peace, verse 27. Ahab's denying Micaiah's prophecy. He says... I'm not going to die. Put the guy in prison after the battle. When I come back, then we'll talk about releasing him. So how does Micaiah respond? If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. He's, Micaiah is saying, if this prediction comes true, then it's evidence that I'm the real deal. Lastly, we'll finish 
Verse 29, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. So Ahab's like, I'm going to go in disguise. You show up as the king. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. He said, I only want the king of Israel dead. Well, Ahab's in disguise. He's among the crowd. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they're like, well, wait a minute, that's the king of Judah. They turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random. That Hebrew is without any aim. No deliberate aim. He's just shooting something into the crowd. And struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died, and the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went out through the army, every man to his city, every man to his country. Why did Ahab disguise himself in battle? He probably knew that Micaiah was giving a real prophecy, so he's like, I'm going to try to avoid that. And even though he's disguised in battle, he's still killed. How? A soldier at random, without deliberate aim, verse 34, shoots an arrow from his bow. The arrow doesn't just hit Ahab. The arrow lands in a narrow strip of unexposed area between plates of armor. Hard to hit an unprotected spot. The implication, the clear implication, is that God directs the arrow to Ahab. Because this is not about a battle, this is about judgment. So what do we find in this story? God shows his omniscience by exactly predicting the future. Right? God shows his mercy by announcing his judgments beforehand. That automatically gives an opportunity of repentance. God shows his sovereignty by arranging every circumstance, even the direction of a randomly shot arrow. God shows his justice by giving Ahab the consequences of Ahab's own evil choices. And what were some of those choices? Well, he was imprisoning and murdering God's prophets. What's the consequence of that? He was choosing, choosing to believe lies instead of the truth. What are the consequences of that? And then we finish with this verse, 37. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it. Why mention that the pool that they washed Ahab's chariot is where the prostitutes were bathing? Why even mention that? There's these little clues, and, and what the author is doing is he's throwing in little clues to show you how sexual immorality had literally become as normal as eating McDonald's in this culture. According to the word of the Lord that he had spoken, Elijah prophesied to Ahab in 1 Kings 21.19 that he would die and dogs would lick up his blood. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, I put this in bold, the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Israel? 
So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. It's interesting. Final thought. These stories, guys, are not just theology. These stories are history. These events really happened. God really said these things. God really did these things. Listen to me. Because these stories are historically true, what we learn from them is theologically right. If these are not accurate history, then the theology, then what we learn from them is not, true, is not correct. Does that make sense? And what we find is archaeological evidence again and again and again. These little references are confirmed by archaeology. So you read this little verse in verse 39 that Ahab and the ivory house that he built. This is from the 9th century B.C. Well, was that true? There was an archaeological excavation in Samaria. They found the palace of King Ahab. A house north of the main palace discovered which had over 12,000 carved ivory objects or fragments of objects that were found. Ivory pieces that were decorating the furniture, ivory pieces that were independent pieces of artwork. It made the whole house decor ivory. Ivory pieces of geometric designs, ivory pieces of plants, animals, um, gods, goddesses, different motifs from, you know, pagan religion, as well as some Judaism and some Hebrew script. These ivory objects, they've also found them in Phoenicia, where Jezebel came from. And they've taken pictures of them from the ivory house that Ahab built. This is not Bible. This is archaeology. Roger, do you want to come up? We got just a couple of minutes. Can we take just five minutes? Is that okay?